Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 16, which along with Psalm 17 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, August the 27th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the life of Solomon in 1 Kings 5, 1 through 6, 1, and then also verse 7. We're also finishing up the book of Acts, uh, Acts 28, 1 to 16, and the gospel for today is Mark 14, 27 to 42. So <laughs> here we go with with the beginning of, of Solomon's reign, and so Hiram, the king of Tyre, the one who built David's house for him in Jerusalem, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David, and Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So David had too much to do in, in, in trying to, to make peace around him. But, but the way that he had to make peace was to go to war. And, and so they, those other people had to stop coming against Israel. And so David had to be a man of war. He didn't have any choice. And so he, he didn't literally have the peace to be able to build the temple. And the Lord told him, no, you're not the man who's going to do that. But but now, he says, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I'll pay you. For your servants, such wages as you set, for you know that there's no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So he is in that area, Hiram is, from, Hiram is, sorry, from Lebanon and Tyre and Sidon, in that place. And that's where the best lumber in the area was coming from. And so, so Solomon says, look, I, I want to build this, this house for my God, and I would appreciate it if you would do for me in this instance as you did for my father when you built his house for him. So as soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon and said, I've heard the message you sent me. I'm ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I'll make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I'll have them broken up there, and you'll receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil, and he gave him this year by year. 
and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So then we're told that, that Solomon, in order to build this and, and, and other projects that he had going on, he, he but mostly for this project, he drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men, and they went 10,000 a month in shifts. They would go to Lebanon and be there for a month, and then they'd come home for two months and then go back. Um, Ab- Ab- Adoniram was in charge of the draft. He also, in addition to those 30,000, he had 70,000 burden bearers, people who carried things, and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. I mean, think about those numbers. There's 180,000 people who are employed to build the temple. 180,000 people. And in addition, there were 3,300 chief officers over the work who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So the builders and his builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And so 480 years after they come out of Egypt, the ark has been in a tent in the tabernacle during all this period of time. And there was no place to worship the Lord that was a fixed place. And so when the house was built, it was with stone. This is so interesting to me. Prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. So they quarried it and dressed the stones, brought them, and then assembled it there without tools. It's an amazing thing to to, to imagine this enormous building project, like I said, 180,000 people are involved in it. And then at the site itself, it's just literally the assembly part of it that's taken place there. Now, how they lifted stone upon stone and did all that work, who in the world knows? But all the work of dressing the stones was done away from the place. All the work of cutting the timber, all of that was done away from the building site itself and then brought there and assembled in place. It's, it's like a manufactured house almost. But, but the, the number of people, sheer number of people just working on this is, is just mind-blowing to think that, that it required that many people to build this thing. It must have been an awesome thing to watch as it went up. And then you can see why in the time of um, Nehemiah, um, when they were rebuilding the temple, you can see why the people would have been discouraged. If it took 180,000 people to build that temple, to think about the rebuilding of that in the, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, to think about th- these exiles who have come back to the land and, and set about the task of rebuilding the temple, which was completely destroyed, it would be demoralizing to begin that work. And so you can see why. They would have felt that way. You've got 180,000 people here who are skilled labor who are doing this. These are not just 180,000 random people without skills. And so you can see why the rebuilding of the temple would have been just a daunting and and overwhelming-looking task. But to see why the prophet will say to them, don't despise the day of small things. No, this is going to be a great thing that you've undertaken. 
So you can you can imagine the the size and scope of this project and, and Solomon being there and the, the nation being at peace enough that they can build this thing and be confident in it. And so in the Mark passage, in the gospel, Jesus is, you know, they're, they're in the garden, right? So this is the last day. This is after they've had the Passover meal that Thursday night. Jesus says to them, you're all going to fall away, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And Peter says, even though they'll fall away, I won't. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. You know, Peter, this is, he's aspirationally this incredibly brave guy. I mean, he's a fisherman. He's not some little weak nobody either. I mean, this is a guy who's accustomed to hauling nets, and, and hauling fish. So he's probably a pretty strong dude. And, and and so when he says this, it, it seems natural to think this big, strong fisherman would not be afraid of these people. But but we know ultimately how it goes. So it's not that, that Peter's all bluster. I mean, he he's probably a significantly strong guy. But not to stand up in front of all of that. And, and now do I have the courage of my conviction regarding Jesus or... I see things sliding in the wrong direction and now I, I, I got to back out of here. But he, he swears that he won't. But, and and you, you can hear it and you can know it. You can know that guy so well because you probably know it within yourself. And then you can probably point to times in your own life when you said, well, you know, I failed there. I failed to be that person at that time. And so they go to the place called Gethsemane, which is the garden at the Mount of Olives. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And he goes a little further off, falls down to the ground and prays that if possible, the hour might pass from him, saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I mean, so his flesh here is failing in the same way that Peter's flesh is going to fail, and yet he's so submitted to the will of the Father. It's like there's got to be another way, but if there's not, then then okay. Um, and then he comes back, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch an hour, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's something to know. On, on, the, eve, on the night of Passover like this, they're, they're, you know, they set aside the chair and leave it there for Elijah to come. And, and so there's a great expectation that Elijah might show up at your Passover uh, festival. And, and then, then the end will come. That's the belief, that that will usher in the end times. When Elijah comes to the Passover feast, then the end time will come. And so they leave a chair for Elijah. But here's the thing you may not know. They stay up all night, and they study, and they pray, and they talk through the events of history until somebody falls asleep. And when somebody falls asleep, beyond their ability to wake up when you say their name, then the Passover ends. And and so sort of there's a... not. Not depressing, but it's, it's it's disappointing. It's like, you know, when you're a kid and, and they tell you it's going to snow overnight and you go to bed with, with more than visions of sugar plums dancing in your head. You're so excited because you're going to wake up to this new thing the next day and then it doesn't snow because you live in the South and it never snows. <laughs> 
not the way they say it's going to snow. And so, so you kind of grow up with constantly getting excited about something and then ultimately being disappointed about it. Well, that's kind of the, the, the reaction on the night of Passover because now, okay, you've gone to sleep. So now Elijah's not going to come. So, okay, let's move on with life. We've got to, it didn't happen this year. And so when he comes, he says, Simon, are you asleep? And because Peter reacts to that, then it, it's kind of done. And, and it, but he reacts. No, so it's not done, sorry, because he reacts initially. And then he goes away and prays again with the same words. And then he comes and finds them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. In other words, all right, it's over. That part is over because they're not answering him. He said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So there's this, that, that he realizes when they're asleep and they can't be woken by saying their names, that we've come to the end. And, and so it's that, that cup is going to be not removed. It's going to be drunk to the last dregs on the cross. So here in the, in the book of Acts... We're, we're reaching the end of this, and so um, Luke is continuing to give us the travel log of, of where they're going. So they've survived running the ship on the ground, and now they're at Malta. And, and so the people there, he says, showed us unusual kindness. They kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain. It was cold. Paul gathered a bunch of sticks and put them on the fire, and when he did, a viper came out because of the heat. It fastened on its hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So karma has bitten him because they're not, they're not Christian. <clears throat> he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So, well, he's not a murderer because that would have been proven by justice if he had died here. So he must be a god because he was bitten by this viper that we know kills people, and he lived. So Paul began to have authority within that as well, because the Lord was protecting him. So in the neighborhood of the place where they were, where they were, there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, and Publius would have been a, a Roman um, governor probably who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when they had, this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They were also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So it kind of goes back to the same thing that happens with Hiram. Hiram has respected David because he's seen David's military accomplishments and seen the kind of man that he is. And so now he's rejoicing because Solomon is the same kind of man, but he has great wisdom at the same time. And so God's being glorified in their uh, lives, and, and this foreign ruler sees it. And it's the same here when they're on Malta with these people, the natives, and, and also the Romans who are there. Um, see, the Lord is with Paul. And so the Lord is being greatly magnified and glorified in this place through the life of Paul and the life of the others who are there. And we should. That's what it means to be salt and light. It means to be so faith-filled that God's able to work through you. I guess that's probably the easiest way to say that. Um, and it's something we experienced recently with this thing with Will. You know, God just told us, and Suzanne and I, in this particular instance, we're filled with faith. 
And so as long as we were filled with faith, we were filled with the Spirit of the Lord. And, and the, the story itself and the testimony about what God was doing began to resonate with people, and people began to see it. And they began to come on board, and they began to pray with us. And, and that made everything stronger. And so the, the people acting in faith and believing in faith and walking in faith is an attractive thing. And when it attracts other people, then, then the Christian church becomes an attractive thing itself because they see people loving one another, praying with one another, and they see the Lord doing great things, doing miracles through them, through the prayers, and in response to the prayers of the saints. It's, it, it's the way things are supposed to be. We should rally around rather than run away as Peter did. And, and so that rallying around, that praying for one another and loving one another is the, the great witness of the church. And in that, power is possible and miracles are possible. So then he, Luke continues on and says, for after three months we left there on another ship with the twin gods as a figurehead, um, putting it at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days, and then we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After a day, a south wind sprang up. The second day we came to Puteoli, and then we found brothers, and we're invited to stay with them for seven days, and then we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. So they came out of the city to meet them. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. He, he has arrived at the place the Lord told him that he would come. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So it, it's not like he's a prisoner in the sense that he's under... Um, chains and all that kind of stuff people can come and see him while he's there uh, Paul the Lord used him mightily all along the way in his imprisonment in his arrest and it's because that he believed that God was going to be glorified and that God was going to be with him and all this God didn't promise him the end of it he just told him he'd go to Rome and he would testify there before the emperor and so Paul's prepared for that he is prepared to speak to the emperor. And what's he prepared to speak to? Not his guilt or innocence, but his witness of Jesus. That's what Paul is there for, is to give in Rome testimony concerning Jesus as Messiah. And these others have come along with him. And so this group is there. They're praying for Paul. They're lifting Paul up. They want to be with Paul, including Luke, because this is all told first person that he's there but but the community itself that's the most important thing we can have right now is the, the the witness of the community itself loving one another and we experience that a million times over in this thing with will and so we're so grateful for that and and i want to now pay it forward and do those same kinds of things but i want to see more and more god doing those kind of miracles because i've been in places where where it was fairly regular to see God do great things, and I'm prepared and ready to see that again and to be a part of that, and he's restoring my faith so that I can be part of that, and that's exciting to me.